This morning, we talked about the church, and we looked at the church from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we talked about uh, what I think is a, a danger that we need to be aware of, and I think it's a common danger. Um, when Jesus was traveling with his disciples, and they were discussing with one another who was the greatest, we can all immediately recognize the problem with that kind of thinking. It's selfish, it's arrogant, it's prideful, it leads to division, and, and all of that, and Jesus critiques them for it. And, and I think I've, I've very rarely heard Christians argue with one another about who is the greatest. However, not far removed from that, I think, is something we do have a tendency to do, which is not to necessarily compare myself to another Christian, but to compare my church to that church to that church to that church, and to see which church is the greatest, and to see which church has the, the most vibrant worship, and to see which church has the most exciting ministries taking place, and to see which church has the greatest preacher or pastor, or, or which church has the most booming numbers, and which church has the best auditorium, and which church has all of these things. And, and people can, can end up thinking that greatness in the kingdom is having the church that's number one. But I think whether you're talking about individuals or whether you're even talking about communities of faith, in the kingdom of heaven, there's a surprising fact that the least is the greatest and the last is the first. The church does its best work while bearing the weight of the cross. The church doesn't always do its best work when everyone is in awe of how glorious a church is. Sometimes the church does its best work when it's doing the humble, doing the unnoticeable, doing the cross-bearing, self-sacrificial work that doesn't always get the pomp and circumstance, that doesn't always get the uh, extreme attention, that doesn't always get the headlines. We have a tendency to think it's the big church that's doing all the things that is the one that, that's the greatest church in the kingdom. But I'm convinced there are small churches. There are churches where... They might not always, uh, always have the biggest budget to do all the greatest ministries, but there are close-knit communities of faith where people love one another, where people are serving God, where people are generous, where people are helping their communities. And those churches, while they might not look like the greatest thing in the world, are doing wonderful work in the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's the same idea that you see over and over and over again in Scripture— don't be fooled by how great things appear with your eyes. Goliath appears to be a greater warrior than David. There's no question about that. But God is surprising. Uh, messiahs, <laughs> Christs or Messiahs, anointed kings, uh, whether it's the king of Rome or whether it's the, you know, King Solomon. or you, you can look at all of these competing king-type fi figures. And you would think, well, how are you going to compare their greatness? How much wealth do they have? What does their army look like? How much land do they rule? How, how well are they ruling it? How many wives do they have? How much wisdom do they have? And yet, in Scripture, the King of kings and the Lord of lords is the one without the wealth and without all the land and without all the, the one who was nailed to a cross becomes the one who, he's the one who the masses walked past shaking their heads, thinking, wow, there's another person who, who's worthless and nailed up there. And I think sometimes we forget that in the same way that the Jesus who looked worthless was changing the world forever and was doing God's work, sometimes it's the Christian and sometimes it's the church 
who you walk past and there's nothing exciting going on, but they're actually doing kingdom work. God works through the ordinary over and over and over again. And so we need to be cautious to not think in order for us to be a pleasing church, we have to be doing the greatest things in the world. We have to be number one. We have to be better than all the other churches. Competition, whether you're competing with other Christians, competing with other preachers, competing with other churches, it's the antithesis of what the kingdom is calling you to do. Faithfulness matters. Love matters. Generosity matters. Humility matters. Being great just doesn't matter all that much. Ambition for the wrong things can, can be a death sentence to a congregation, uh, spiritually speaking. Maybe, maybe they'll be able to accomplish some cool things, but it'll end up making them a toxic, dangerous environment. And that's not what we want in the kingdom of heaven. And we looked at First Thessalonians to try to, to flesh out some of those ideas. Uh, what I want to do uh, in the lesson tonight is to stay in First Thessalonians, but back up a chapter earlier um, to, to First Thessalonians chapter 3. I mentioned uh, this morning that the first three chapters of First Thessalonians are these uh, repeated thanksgivings that Paul gives. There's three different passages where he expresses his thanks for them. And after doing so, he kind of explains and expounds upon that thanksgiving for like a whole chapter. And then he'll, he'll say another thanksgiving and he'll expound upon that for a while. And really the first three chapters are a lengthy explanation of why he is so thankful for those churches and how they heard the word of God and what they're doing. And, and this is really incredible in light of the circumstances that the, that church was left in. I mentioned it this morning. In Acts 17, Paul goes there. It mentions that he was there three Sabbaths, uh, and then it mentions a persecution that caused him to have to flee and leave. And then he goes to Berea, and that's the next city he, he enters, and he studies there, and we're told that those in Berea were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. They searched the scriptures daily to see whether or not the things that he was saying were, were actually true. And so just think about what we get from Thessalonica. Some people became Christians, but it seems to be a, a relatively small number. Um, it was a tumultuous situation that immediately led to persecution. And the people that they were surrounded by in the synagogue were the unnoble minded uh, They were the people whose minds were uh, hostile. And so he leaves and there are these Christians there in a hostile persecuting, dangerous environment where Paul couldn't even stay more than a couple of weeks. How is a church going to survive if Paul couldn't even be there more than a couple of weeks? Uh, and so there's a lot of concern about that church. And Paul ends up going to Berea. He ends up going to Athens. And when he gets to Athens, he, uh, he has sent Timothy to go back to Thessalonica, to go back into that dangerous, dark situation and find out, is the church even still meeting? Or does anyone still believe what we talked about? Does anyone, like, what's going on there? And Timothy is there. If I said Titus, I meant Timothy. Uh, but anyway, but Timothy is there. And then he makes his way back to Athens and he finds Paul and he gives him the report. And that report is why Paul is giving so much thanks. Uh, he has heard that they are doing extremely well. And so what we're going to get in this chapter is a very thankful and happy Paul when he finds out that the church is healthy and thriving. And as he lists what he's thankful for, he lists what he thinks a thriving, healthy church looks like. 
And what's interesting is he doesn't mention, you guys are doing great. Your worship is exciting and, and everyone is, is drawn into the, 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 the incredible experience of the music and the lights. and the, Like that's not, this doesn't even come up. Uh, some of the things that we think of as making the church the most important things or the things that would have the biggest draw or some of the things that would be the most exciting, they don't even come up at all in this list of what he's so thankful for about the church. But he does mention some eternal, timeless truths that no matter whether you're a rich church or a poor church or a big church or a small church or a church that uh, is, is doing the exciting things or a church that might seem boring, he mentions the things that matter. He mentions things like love. He mentions uh, things like uh, kindness. He mentions some relatively simple things that you can do that get so easily overlooked but in the kingdom, they are the most important things that there is. So I want to look at First uh, Thessalonians, and uh, let's look. Let's start in ver- uh, chapter two and verse seventeen. Um, just just quickly before we get to two seventeen, I do want to mention those three Thanksgivings. The first one is right at the beginning of the book, uh, chapter one and verse two. The first thing he he does is he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. So your faith, your love, and your hope. And the fact that you are active in those, that you are working in those ways, and that you are steadfast and committed in them. He also says in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God our Father, knowing, beloved brethren, uh, by God, be- brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. And so he is thankful that in faith and hope and in love, they are active and they are sticking with it. And he is thankful for God's choice of them. What you're going to see throughout, hopefully, this whole section we're going to, to, to read through is a sincere and intense love that Paul has for these Christians, even these Christians he's spent relatively little time with, but he has grown to genuinely care about them. And if you want a lesson on what matters in the kingdom, I think you can see it by looking at how much Paul has grown to love these people who he is united with them by faith in Christ. And he cares about them deeply. He's concerned about them. He, he can't even wait to hear about them uh, even after he has left. When you look at chapter 2 in verse 13, this is the second Thanksgiving that he mentions. And he says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. Now, there were others there in the synagogue and there were others there in the city who did not accept it as the word of God. They heard Paul and they thought, oh, this is just some man speaking nonsense. And they responded with, uh, with violence. They responded with rejection. But these, these Christians, this select group from among that greater number, when they heard it, they accepted it as actually the word of God. And they saw the demonstration of the power of God through the Spirit behind these words in different miraculous ways. Paul mentions that earlier in chapter 1 also. And so there were people who were honest enough, even in a culture that rejected these words, to hear them, to sincerely believe them. And Paul is thankful for that. So he's thankful for their 
initial reception of the gospel. He's thankful that they have continued to work in the gospel. But as we said, he's, there's definitely a concern about how are they doing now that they're in my absence, left on their own in that hostile culture and environment. Look at chapter 2 and verse 17, and that's where we're going to start reading. We're going to uh, get through the end of chapter 3, and, and we're going to try to note some important things along the way. But one of the things initially that I want uh, to bring our attention to is just how regularly throughout this section, Paul is going to mention his desire to go back and see them again. He did not want to leave when he left. He wants to be back with them, and he's going to do everything possible. And anytime something gets in the way of him going back there, he attributes that to the work of Satan. Like Satan is trying to keep us from each other. Uh, Hell itself is afraid of what this church can do and of the potential this church has. And so Paul is, is... very much wanting to overcome that so that he can uh, uh, continue to be a positive influence on them. But look at verse 17, chapter 2. He says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit. Notice he's saying, look, I've had to leave. Hopefully it's not for a long time. It's for a short while, and I'm only gone in, in person, in the flesh. Spiritually, I'm right there as closely connected to you as I have ever been. Don't let time and distance think that we can't be united in fellowship with one another. By the way, I think that just that concept is a beautiful concept for thinking about the church, perhaps that you are, maybe congregations, other Christians, some of the work in Albania, some of the churches that you've been a part of at different times in your life where you love the Christians there. There are people who perhaps we are separated from them uh, by time and by location and, and, and uh, in some of those ways, but we can be closely and tightly knit together through having a spirit that is uh, in fellowship, that is in unity in Christ. And Paul seems to uh, consider that as an important type of unity. Yes, he is, he is in a different city, but he's still with them. They're still together. They're still in fellowship. They're still working together for the cause of Christ in spirit. And he wants them to know that. Uh, Verse 17 continues. He says that uh, he's away from them for a short while in person, but not in spirit. And they were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. And yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope? or joy, or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You are our glory and joy. When you, when you look at the world around you, and you look at your life, and you ask yourself, okay, what are the most important things to me? What is my crown of exaltation? What is my joy? What is my glory? What is it that I care the most about? What is my most precious and prized possession? Paul seems to be putting well, other Christians that I care about in that category. It's like when he thinks about what his crown and what his joy and what his exaltation and in all of that, what, it, what are his greatest riches in this life? It's the Christians there at Thessalonica, who he mentions right here. Uh, these are the people that he is thinking about and focused on, and they're worth a, a tremendous amount to him now, and I think also in the age to come, in the coming of our Lord. They are his joy. They are his crown of exaltation. They are uh, what matters uh, so much to him, his hope. And, and so even in that, you're getting the idea of how important a tightly knit community of faith is. Uh, it, Paul's hope and his joy is not in his hobbies or in his job or in his wealth. 
it's in them. Um, and, and I think that that is an important reminder for us uh, to consider our priorities sometimes. What are the things that matter most to us? What are the things that are the most meaningful to us? Um, if in a church that's thriving, it's going to be one another. Uh, the people who you care about, the other Christians, the people who are united with you in Christ, the people who you can help grow spiritually, and the people who help you grow spiritually. That becomes one of the most prized uh, things that we have in this world. So chapter 3 and verse 1, he continues, and he says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So he's at the point where he says, I can't take it anymore. When I can endure it no longer. Timothy, I know it's dangerous. I know you're going to have to travel a long way. I know there's going to be traveling expenses. I know you're going into a hostile environment. But go and do whatever is necessary to get back to that church, risk your life to get back to that church, and to find out how they are doing. Are they still meeting? Go track down some of the people who we met, who we talked to, who we baptized. See what they're doing. Find out. Like This is, this is, a, uh, this is a mission that he's being sent to go into this city where they just had to leave not too long before and to find out, is, are there still Christians there? Is the church still meeting? How is the church doing? Are they, uh, ha- have they been convinced that what Paul says was just nonsense? Have they gone back to their former way of life? Or are they still putting their faith in the message that they heard? These are big questions. And so Timothy's job is to go back and to find them. And Paul says at the end of verse 2, strengthen and encourage uh, uh, you. Uh, he says in verse 2, And we sent Timothy, our uh, brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So I think that might be written with the mindset that he's concerned their faith uh, has been dwindling in some ways because he wants Timothy to go there to strengthen it, to encourage it, to make it greater. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe he thinks they're all just wonderful, but there's definitely reason to assume that he's probably concerned about where their level of faith is right now, and he wants it to be strengthened from that point, encouraged from that point. And so that's Timothy's job. So you can even just think, even though Paul can't be there, he prays for them regularly, and he has mentioned that, and he sends someone to go back there to try to make sure that their faith is strengthened and encouraged. Verse 3, he says, "...so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know." that we have been destined for this. And indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. Um, one thing that's interesting, and I mentioned it twice right there, uh, Paul writes it twice, that phrase, you yourselves know, or as you know, Paul uses that over and over and over again throughout uh, the book of First uh, Thessalonians. He is, he is not necessarily imparting new information but he is trying to remind them of important information. Even when you get to, to chapter 4, when he starts uh, exhorting and encouraging them, he's, he's not really giving them new teaching, and he's not giving them necessarily teaching that they're doing bad on. He's just saying, the things you've already been doing, 
excel still more in those things. See if you can do even better in those things. Uh, there's, there's not a lot of new information, uh, really probably until you get to the end of chapter 4, where he starts trying to, to clarify some misunderstandings they're having about the second coming of Jesus uh, and, uh, and, what the, and the resurrection and what some of that is going to look like and what some of it will entail. And, uh, and, and when you get to that section, he, he uh, is no longer using that phrase, as you know, nearly as much. But at this point, he's reminding them of things that have already happened. And, uh, and specifically in verses 3 and 4, He's reminding them about the afflictions. And he's reminding them that he tried to prepare them for afflictions. Some of the persecution that we've already been talking about. He says he wants them to be strengthened and encouraged through those persecutions, through those afflictions, and to grow from them. And even while he was there, he tried to warn them that it would happen. And as you know, it did happen. Uh, The persecution was very real. Um, And so he wants them to be able to grow from that. But if he's been gone... And you have to put yourself in their time and place and circumstance. He can't call them and find out, hey, how are you guys doing? Uh, He can't send them a message on Facebook or anything like that. Uh, Communication with the people who live in a distant city is a very slow process. And so he is concerned. He's worried. He sends Timothy. He has to wait for Timothy to get all the way there. He has to wait for Timothy to spend time with him. He still doesn't know anything. He has to wait for Timothy to be able to travel all the way back. By the way, traveling wasn't always uh, a simple, you know, a, a simple, easy, safe thing to do. And so, you know, you have perhaps a day or a, a, a range that you're hoping someone comes back in. And if they don't make it back in a day or two beyond that, you're starting to think, did anything happen along the way? It's hard to get news if things happen. It's just, it's a different world than we live in now. And so you just have to picture Paul two times uh, in these verses, verse one and verse five, uses the phrase, when I could endure it no longer, when I couldn't stand it anymore. You, you get the impression he is anxiously awaiting the arrival of this report. And he finally gets it. In chapter three and verse five, he says, for when this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would have been in vain. He's worried that maybe through persecution, maybe through the darkness of the culture in which they are, Satan could have gotten active. Satan's already been active in keeping him from getting there. Maybe Satan was active in destroying your faith. And all of the relationships that we built, the gospel that was preached, the work that was done, the church that was established, all of that would have come to nothing. It would have all been in vain. Paul really hopes that didn't happen. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us, from you and has brought good news of your faith and love. Now we're starting to find out that things have turned out really well. Uh, so Timothy comes back and Paul is finally able to hear how they're doing. In verse 6, notice the things that are good news. When he hears that the church is thriving, when he hears that the church is doing well, we're right in this section about to figure out what Paul thinks is the makeup of a healthy church that has been enduring, has been doing the will of God. He doesn't mention uh, their, uh, their budget. He doesn't, you know, that, that's not necessarily the sign of how great or healthy a church is. He doesn't mention, uh, the, the attendance numbers. I don't know the attendance numbers. Uh, he doesn't mention, uh, how exciting the worship experience is. He doesn't mention, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, any, any, uh, you know, anything about, <laughs> about their church building or anything, you know, they probably didn't have a church building. Uh, but, uh, but he doesn't mention any of the things that we might associate with, a growing and thriving church. What he mentions is 
we got good news of your faith and love and that you always speak kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. It's like, notice how much of that is relational, um, how much of that is, is eternal and timeless and, and doesn't depend on circumstance or wealth or things like that. Faith is something that people can have anywhere in any city in the world. And he says that's there. And that's what God's looking for. Love is something that is essential to the life of the church. And it's something that can exist anywhere. And it's something that he's seeing it right there. And he says, that's the good news that we heard about. In kindness, you still speak kindly about us. That's something that people can do anywhere. And he's seeing it there. And that's a fruit of the kingdom that he's seeing. And in the fact that you long to see us just as we long to see you. It's like Paul has been sitting there and he's mentioned it several times. I so badly want to go see you. And the church there is thinking, we so badly want you to come see us. And that's an exciting thing for him to find out. That there's still a good quality fellowship relationship. Just like he is with them in spirit but not in person. They're with him in spirit and not in person. He, He hears that news. That's really good news. Those are the types of things that make church matters so much. Those are the types of things that God is looking for in his churches and and among his people. So verse 7, he says, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. It's like, so even though we're suffering, even though we have persecution and affliction and hard times coming our way, I was able to have comfort. Like I was able to experience peace and ease because I found out that you guys are doing well. That's where his idea of comfort comes from. Uh, Comfort didn't come from a nice comfy couch. It came from hearing good news about the church, and and that's what matters to Paul. Uh, Verse 8, not only is that where his comfort comes from, that's where real life comes from. He says, for now we live, or now we really live, if you stand firm in the Lord. If they're standing firm, Paul can live life as it was intended to be. If they're standing firm, even through affliction and hardship, Paul can be comforted uh, because that's what matters. That's what the church is all about. And so, verse 9, we get to our third thanksgiving. For now, what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Uh, So in that, he says, he still talks about praying night and day for them. He wants to see their face. He mentions that again. And he wants to be able to bring their faith even to completion. He wants to bring it further along than it already is. And he's praying to God to do that. When you get to verse 11, you're going to get some of that prayer. Uh, He says, now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. That's what he's praying for. God, let us go see them again. Direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before God, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord uh, Jesus with all his saints. Notice his prayer is that we would be able to see each other again, but also that you would increase and abound in something. What is it? 
What does he want them to increase and abound in? Because whatever it is, I'm pretty sure he thinks that's an important part of what being a healthy, thriving church is all about. And what he mentions is increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. Love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for one another as a family. But then also lift up your eyes and look outside and look around you. And even the people who we've been talking about who are persecutors, even the people in the culture who were not so noble-minded, even the people who uh, have been causing some problems, see if you can love them as well. If you can increase and abound with love for one another and then love for those around you, that's how you'll be able to make an impact. You know, we all have goals for the church. I know I do, and I pray a lot for this church, and I pray a lot for the, for the church uh, at large. And um, there are things that, uh, that I want to happen, and there are things that I would love to see, and there's growth that I would love to see, and I would, I would be really excited about that. But I'm, I, I'm convinced that striving or being ambitious for exploding numbers or for growth isn't really the key to growth. Uh, I think being ambitious for what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians, maybe even be ambitious to lead a quiet life. Uh, Maybe loving one another and growing in that. Being the community that God has called us to be. Being humble, being generous, carrying the cross, planting and watering is what we do. And what I believe is true is that when we do that, God gives the increase. Growth comes not because we were ambitious for growth. Growth comes not because we sought growth above all else. Growth comes not because I was really creative or really talented or, or that we came up with the most brilliant uh, uh, programs or we had the most beautiful building or our worship was the greatest uh, experience you've ever had in your life. Those things can be good. It, it, yeah, do the, like, I mean, try to make worship a, a, a beneficial, good experience and try to make it spiritually uplifting and, and try to take care of the building. Like, I'm, no way am I saying anything negative about those ideas. But as soon as those ideas become the mission, you've forgotten the mission. Uh, God is the one who gives the growth. You be humble, generous, faithful, cross-bearing and loving and see what God does with those simple things. See what God does with those things that might not look the most exciting. That's where you'll find, uh, that's where you'll find the kingdom of heaven uh, on earth. And, and Paul is praying for those uh, things and, and I think probably that would be a good prayer for us as well. Uh, when we pray about the future of this church, Could we pray words like, may the Lord cause us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, uh, just as, uh, he says, just as we also do for you. And then verse 13, that God may establish our hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Wouldn't it be great if our hearts were found holy and blameless? Maybe those are the types of things that we should emphasize. Maybe those are the types of things that we should strive for. And, uh, and maybe God can do big things with that. Uh, maybe, maybe David actually can beat Goliath. Uh, maybe the cross actually is where the glory of God can be seen more than anywhere else. And maybe it's the humble church faithfully serving God uh, where the kingdom can grow and where the work and mission of Christ can be accomplished. Um, 
When I read 1 Thessalonians, uh, I'm filled with hope that God can work through any culture and through any church, and I think that he can continue to work here. This is a church that, uh, when I think of what our future holds, I think we're doing a lot of things really well, and I think 1 Thessalonians is a good book for us because, in my mind, uh, look at the things that you do and excel still more. Try to see what more you can do. Try to see what more ways that we can grow in our love for each other. By the way, I think last night, however many were able to participate in the, uh, the um, oh, what, what is it called? Uh, who's coming to dinner? Uh, however many were able to participate in that, I think it was a, a great experience. Everyone I talked to has had a great uh, experience with it. And uh, those types of things that can foster and facilitate love, relationships, growth, and family, uh, those things are essential. And I think they're really, really important. And so uh, continue to make effort. And, uh, and I think that good things will happen. If there's anyone here tonight who would like to become a Christian, who would like to become part of this church, or would like the prayers of this church, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.